G'day mate, 40 here. I was just at the LA Marathon and I was seeing all these thousands of people, you know, cheering each other on. And uh, it, uh, it made me think, like, I would not be likely to do that. All right, I, I'm not the type of person who shows up at events just to, you know, cheer their friends on. And then I was also thinking, so I was wandering around Century City and Beverly Hills at the LA Marathon, like how this was a group activity for so many people. My, my default is to always do things on my own. And so I started thinking, maybe the sheep, maybe the sheep know all sorts of things and are pursuing a more adaptive, effective strategy in life than, than I am. Maybe it's better to be a sheep than a contrarian. Maybe it's better to be sheep than an individualist. Because if you trained for a marathon together with your friends, right, you did it as a joint group activity, I mean, it would be so much more cool than just doing it on your own. And if you ran the LA Marathon with your friends, it would, be, it would have so much more meaning and create you know, closer bonds between you and your friends. Why do I doubt my own preferences? Because sometimes I see that my own preferences are maladaptive and I think that there are better preferences. So I have this instinctive knee-jerk reaction. Oh, the sheep. The sheep that just, you know, going along with what everyone else is doing. But then I start thinking, maybe the sheep are right. Right? If if twenty people run by you in, in panic and fear, right? Uh maybe they know something that you don't. All right. So maybe you need to Maybe you need to just follow them without uh, trying to figure it all out on your own, right? Maybe, maybe the sheep have got something going, right? Maybe, maybe there's something to be learned from other approaches to life. So I just can't imagine showing up at a marathon just to, to cheer. I, I didn't do any cheering. I, I just showed up to the marathon to perhaps make some comments. I, I got energy from just walking around, seeing thousands of people stream past. So I, I walked for, for miles along the marathon route and it just kind of, you know, it was energizing seeing other people out there. And then I was thinking how good hearted these people are to volunteer. And my life has significantly increased in quality since I took up volunteering about five, five, ten years ago. So prior to that, I led, you know, much more individualist and, and selfish life. And I still largely do. I, I love my, my own time to do things like these live streams. But uh, moving the needle towards more group activity and towards more volunteering with other people definitely increased my happiness and, and uh, increased my energy level and increased my connections with other people. So I, I think of myself primarily as, as a writer. And so I feel like I should, you know, carve out as much time as possible for writing and for reading and for doing things that can lead to my writing. But take out five, ten hours of the week and put it into volunteering. It seems to seems to enhance the quality of my life. So normally, naturally, people spend eight, ten hours a day around other people. And my my default would probably be something like spending two hours. Like if I just followed my own inclination, right? I, I think like my, my default would be just spending about two hours around other people. But uh, I think there is something to be learned from the sheep. I want to learn from the sheep, right? I don't have to go 100% with the sheep, but I think there's definitely something to be learned from the sheep. 
So, what the hell? What have I got here? Robert Wright talking with Mickey Either Cass. the conventional wisdom is just like, okay, he's toast, and his polling numbers plummet further, or maybe even gets out. But suppose, one way or another, in six weeks, it's like, whoa, talking about Ron Trump DeSantis. killed DeSantis. Then does that, does that mean, okay, Trump is king, no one can stop him, or does it mean the establishment desperately scrambles to come up with a formidable Trump alternative, they meet in smoke-filled rooms, and they come up with a Trump killer? They'll try, but I think it means Trump is king. Mm. Uh, For Mike Glenn Youngkin's scenario to happen, you have to let DeSantis rough up Trump badly Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe beat him in a few primaries so that they both have to drop out somehow. Um, You know, it's it's scary. I don't think think the establishment could come up with uh, anybody who hasn't been mentioned who can beat Trump. Right now, if you were just betting, it was just about money, who would you bet will get the Republican nomination? I guess I would bet DeSantis. Would you? But... But I wouldn't have my con- It's a 5149 thing. Yeah. I mean, what scares me is it is reasonably likely that Trump is going to be president again. Because I'm telling you, you put him up against Biden and uh, all bets are off. I mean, Biden, I was thinking today, like, if, if, if a Republican opponent has the presence of mind to challenge Biden on this debate stage with the fact that they, they chose not to negotiate, like, suppose the Ukraine war is a mess. Right. And, and the Republican candidate is well versed in this particular, uh, quote, admission by the this high-ranking state department official Derek Charlotte that they just refuse to talk about uh you know permanently keeping ukraine out of nato um, I, I think i think that's a that's a non-zero newsletter issue i don't think it's a public issue you don't, don't think, think it works i don't think i don't think you know i don't think you can go back and say uh you know you uh, you, think, you, you didn't negotiate a, seriously a good stab in the back there you need something more than that i think it depends on how big a mess things are in ukraine so <laughs> he's scared that uh trump is still king Okay, so connected with this thought about maybe the sheep have something going on. Am I an introvert? When I'm struggling with things, I become more introverted. When I am thriving, I become more extroverted. So Friday night, I just got a great sleep, and I was an extroverted dude on on Shabbos. I mean, I was outgoing. I felt great. I mean, I felt free. I felt energized. I was very outgoing. But when I'm struggling, I become introverted. So I guess my default is kind of in between introvert and extrovert. The happier I am, the more effective I am at life, the more extroverted I get. Uh, Bernard says, for all my moaning about women, I've asked shockingly few out on a date. So, bro, volunteering, just being around women, and and then things start to happen. Uh, Volunteering, uh, pursuing activities where there are women, hiking, uh, learning to dance. Like, if you just get around women, then things things, things happen. Why are the wisest people in history known to be introverted? Because the extroverted are having such a good time with other people that they don't spend as much time alone writing. Writing is a very solitary activity, which is usually best suited for introverts. It's a very isolated activity. So happy people are out there being with other people while introverted people are being alone, which gives them more time to live stream and to write. So connected with all this, I've been, while I was walking through the, the LA Marathon, right, I was listening to an Audible book called Social, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Connect. It's by an academic, Matthew Lieberman. So oxytocin, right, that is the love drug or the trust drug, right? It's a, it's a hormone, and it seems to turn us from zeros to heroes when it comes to caring for other people, caring for our own children, and forming connections with others. Nurses 
care for strangers virtually every day. Now, in animals, pro-social sentiments towards one's offspring have been associated with higher levels of oxytocin. But see how racist oxytocin is? Do you finally understand the racism, the structural racism inherent in our hormonal endocrine system? The racism in our endocrine system is just out of control, and frankly, it's time the doggone government does something about this, because the more oxytocin you have going on, the more you love your own group. The more you love your in-group, the more you love your own children, the more you love your own relatives, and the more negatively you feel towards out-groups who you perceive as a threat to your group. You see the racism that just flows inherently from our endocrine systems, and I think it's time that the United States government intervenes and forcefully castrates everybody so they no longer are filled with these racist hormones which cause them to care more about their own children than, say, starving children in Africa or India. Right? Oxytocin causes people to care more about their own kind, their own in-group, right? their own relatives, right? their own side rather than strangers or enemies. All right? Oxytocin fuels the in-group, out-group dynamic, which we need to overcome, guys. This is why we're here. We're here to overcome our endocrine systems, to overcome our evolutionary imprinting. So Robert Wright, uh, lefty thinker, He's a big believer in evolution, and he, he's basically dedicated his life to trying to ameliorate or <laughs> erase or diminish our evolutionary tendencies towards tribalism. Oxytocin is highly problematic is an understatement. It's just hugely highly problematic. It's so racist. It's fueling racism. It, I mean, can how long can our government afford to stand by and just let people secrete oxytocin, driving up their in-group identities, driving up how much they care for their own children, and then driving up negative feelings they might have towards super predators. Right? If people just had lower levels of oxytocin, lower levels of testosterone, right, they wouldn't get all these negative, intense negative feelings about outgroups and super predators. They wouldn't be so racist and caring more for their own children than they care for, say, starving children in Africa, right? Even in animals, right? Caring for your own kind associated with high levels of oxytocin. Very troubling, very problematic. So, hmm. Uh, fearlessness appears to be influenced by oxytocin, all right? So if you're with your own kind, you tend to be less fearful, which is racist, Right? So if you're filled with oxytocin, you may well help someone else even when the situation is distressing or gross. Right? If it's your own children, if it's your own kind. Right? But would you do that for a stranger? Would you do that for an outgroup? No. Running marathon seems pretty introverted. Yeah, that's what I thought, but maybe we're just introverted and we're, we're putting that on other people. This does not look like an introverted activity. Right? This is an extroverted activity activity all right i mean these these people have people who care about them and love them and cheer for them and they're running with friends and they're running with family it's it's a extroverted activity for, for many of them but uh we need to get a handle on all these racist hormones that are just coursing through our system so 
you see someone in need, say someone with a bloody wound, right, higher levels of oxytocin would increase the reward feeling that you get for approaching that person and decreasing their distress. So oxytocin promotes care for offspring across mammalian species. It has different effects on how primates and non-primates treat strangers. So in non-primates, increased oxytocin is associated with increased aggression towards strangers. Very problematic. So this is generally understood in terms of mothers protecting their infants from unknown threats. How can we reduce the intensity of love that mothers feel for their infants and reduce their intensity to want to protect their infants from unknown threats or from known threats or from super predators highly 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 problematic and racist so this ensures that the mother's limited resources are spent only on those offspring that will pass on her genes to future generations sounds pretty racist both the caring and aggression related effects of oxytocin are demonstrated in human beings as well this is why the government just cannot stand by and allow people's oxytocin levels to thrive Right, so administering oxytocin increases generosity when people play behavioral economic games like the prisoner's dilemma. On the flip side, administering oxytocin leads to more aggressive responses to members of other ethnic groups in the prisoner's dilemma. So right now, we're just being all laissez-faire, free market, all individualists, just let people surge their oxytocin levels all they want, but that leads to in more aggressive responses to members of other ethnic groups when confronted with something like the prisoner's dilemmas. So people are, are less likely to cooperate. They're more likely to be aggressive with other ethnic groups when they have higher levels of, of oxytocin, when they have higher levels of testosterone. Right? Oxytocin promotes in-group favoritism. Right? Oxytocin levels... The higher they go, the more hostility towards those who are not part of one's in-group. Now, the dividing line between friend or foe, you'll be relieved to know, differs in a crucial way between primates and other mammals. So in non-primates, oxytocin leads individuals to see all outsiders as possible threats, thus enhancing aggression toward them. Contrast humans divide others into at least three categories, members of liked groups and members of disliked groups and strangers whose affiliations are unknown. So administering oxytocin in humans facilitates caregiving toward both like groups and strangers, but, problematic here, it promotes hostility towards members of disliked groups. So I was walking around in Sydney, Australia, right, for, for a couple of months, and then went up to Tenham Sands in, in Queensland. You should have seen those oxytocin levels just spiking all around me, and people helping out strangers because they considered the strangers, you know, their fellow Australians. And because there weren't many members of unwanted, you know, uh, outside groups around, they, uh, they were pretty chill. Uh, not, not a lot of aggression. So sad they don't get the exciting life that we have in Los Angeles, New York, and Chicago. Okay, oxytocin in humans promotes altruistic tendencies not just towards one's own group, but towards members of groups that aren't a threat. So oxytocin increases our generosity toward complete strangers if we perceive these strangers as not a threat, as not super predators. So strangers who start with a positive bias towards one another can do great things together 
such as building homes, schools, and other institutions that support a society. So if you limit the number of super predators and unwanted ethnic groups, you can just allow people to surge their oxytocin and then start doing things cooperatively, building a better society together. Sounds really racist to me. Severing of a social bond, whether it's the end of a long-term romantic relationship, the death of a loved one, the end of a friendship, right? Maybe, maybe you've been live streaming with some blokes and then things happen and you no longer get to live stream with these blokes and you even call them and you email them and you reach out to them and they're not interested in live streaming with you anymore. This is one of the greatest risk factors for depression and anxiety. Right? Adults can survive with unmet social needs far longer than with unmet physical needs. But our social bonds are linked to how well we live and how long we live. Having a poor social network is as bad for you as smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. Social motivation for connection is present in all of us from infancy. It is a pressing need. The evolutionary fallout from the presence of these social needs is a major advantage to those who are able to minimize their social pains and maximize their social pleasures. Building and maintaining social networks is no easy feat. Just watch any reality show from Survivor to MTV's Real World. Fortunately, evolution has given us not one but two brain networks that help us to understand those around us and to work more cohesively, cohesively with them. Connection is the foundation on which our social lives are founded, but evolution was far from finished, making sure we would make the most of our social lives. Right, that's the book uh, Social by Matthew Lieberman. Social, why our brains are wired to connect. Now, you're probably wondering... 40, talk to me. Why do people seek out painful experiences like the Los Angeles Marathon? What would Yale psychologist Paul Bloom have to say about this when he's in conversation with the Decoding the Gurus academics, Matthew Brown and Chris Cavanaugh? I, I seen a talk that you give um, at a conference, which was very entertaining as well, about the, the kind of topic of the paradox of people seeking out yeah. painful experiences and enjoying it. And this is like a research interest of mine, mainly for the area of like painful rituals or, or people engaging in like, you know, uh, painful martial arts ceremonies or these kind yeah. of things. But um, I, and I, I, I do have a way to tie it to the gurus, but I'm just curious initially, like the, your big picture takeaways from looking at that about, you know, the uh, paradoxical nature of pain. Is everybody like secretly a masochist or is there uh, something else at play? Yeah, I, this was the focus of my last book, The Sweet Spot. And at this conference we were at in Sicily, I was trying out the ideas, I think for the first time, which was, which was a lot of fun. Um, I do think we seek out pain and struggle and effort and misery in the right doses, all of us in both religious and non-religious context. I, I don't think there's going to be a single story behind it. So some of it, and this will be this will be ideas familiar to both of you. Some of it, I think, is signaling. You might want to want to you know stick needles through your body or something to show others how tough you are or how or how pious you are. Some of it has a sort of I'm conscious here, but kind of group selectionist idea, which is that that communities of people who suffer together kind of stick together, and there's a real power to that. Everything from a fraternity to a to a cult. Um, I think that there's a pleasure sometimes to be taken in pain. From the sort of contrast, there's a you know you eat really spicy curry and then you wash it down with some cool beer and it's just transcendent. Um, but mostly, I try to tie suffering and effort and struggle to meaning, and I try to argue that you know we, we there's many things we want out of life, and one thing we want is to have meaningful, rich lives, and we recognize that that involves struggle and difficulty, sometimes real physical pain. You know, I I, I know guys, I know guys who decide, oh, there's a marathon coming up, I'm just going to run it, and then they run it, and it's just fine because they're in such great shape. But for them, it's not going to be that satisfying. When I ran a marathon, I was in terrible shape. It took me months and months of training. It was agony. And because of that, many years later, I'm talking about it to you too, because I, it was really meaningful to me. And I, mm. so those are some of the stories behind suffering. Yeah. I, that... Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Paul. So I've been reading The Atlantic, guys. I, I've gotten educated about bank bailouts. You don't understand. These are good things, guys. 
what people sto still don't get about bailouts. Michael Grunwald writing here in the Atlantic, good financial crisis management is about doing what it takes to stop the contagion. So imagine you're with a firefighting crew and you show up and a, a burning, a building is burning, right? Is that your primary obligation to figure out why the building is burning? Is your primary obligation to figure out how is the building up to fire code? Or is your primary obligation to put out the burning building? So that's why we bail out depositors. I guess I'm becoming a socialist in this area. I think we should guarantee all bank deposits with, with any bank, any savings and loan that is you know, federally registered, meet certain minimal standards to get a sign off from the FDIC, then I think we should bail out depositors, right? Not stockholders in the bank, not bondholders with, with the bank, but we should bail out depositors. The first obligation is to stop the fire. All right, Michael Grunwell, The Atlantic. Doesn't seem fair, does it? 15 years after our financial overlords went on a bailout binge, we gave them trillions of dollars of taxpayer dollars. They're once again riding to the rescue of the rich while the public watches in horror. Did they learn none of the lessons from the 2008 meltdown? Well, yes, they did. The government's financial crisis managers clearly studied the lessons of 2008, which is one reason the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank doesn't seem to have created another cataclysm. It is the public that's never understood these lessons which is one reason the public is likely to draw the wrong conclusions about the San Silicon Valley bank mess too. And the most important lesson is the hardest to understand. Good financial crisis management isn't supposed to seem fair, right? F fairness is, is a nice category. It's a nice virtue, but virtues don't exist in a vacuum. All right. It's not like you can just say, oh, fairness is number one, or freedom is number one, or equality is number one, or tradition is number one, right? You need all sorts of, of different virtues. They're always competing with each other, and different situations means, you know, some virtues move more to the fore, other virtues move more to the background, resonates a lot because you know i've done a bit of work on on similar things and about people enjoying uh like rights of initiation but also just traumatic experiences which they yeah. then reflect on right and some people end up with post-traumatic stress disorder or, or kind of you know lingering uh, mental issues around trauma but other people often reframe it as like the catalyst for growth right that they that they were able to get through um okay guys fighting a financial crisis is like fighting a dangerous fire so Good firefighters don't worry about whether a burning building is up to code. They don't worry about whether someone smoked in bed. They don't worry whether some friends of the tenants are trashing them on Twitter. They don't ask themselves if maybe some of the bozos inside deserve to burn. They focus on putting out the flames because fires can spread and out-of-control infernos can be disasters for everyone. So during the 2008 financial crisis, there was no way to extinguish the flames without bailing out some of the financial arsonists. Although it's a myth that none of them paid any price and the bailouts ended up turning a profit for the taxpayers. Biden administration's more modest bailout of the Silicon Valley Bank should not cost taxpayers a dime either. So far, there's been no need to bail out any arsonists, although some depositors who wrongly assume they're building was safe were protected from losses they weren't protected because they were innocent or worthy or entitled to protection they were protected to quell a panic 
because panic is what turns local financial fires into systemic conflagrations. This makes sense to me. Now, even a mini bailout doesn't rescue villains or soak taxpayers, all right? Uh, this makes people mad. Where's our bailout? Why do governments always do favors for millionaires? What kind of message does this send? Well, it sends the calming message that everyone should feel safe stashing cash in banks. But yes, it looks bad. Bailouts always do. The general weakness of the financial system is it rests on a foundation of confidence. That's why banks are called trusts, and why many of their buildings have giant pillars out front to convey stability. There's also a specific weakness illustrated by the bank run in the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Banks don't keep most of their deposits in the bank. They use deposits to make long-term loans. Now, that's a great way to help individuals and businesses invest in the future. But after bank runs helped to start the Great Depression, the newly created Federal Deposit Insurance Company began insuring deposits up to $2,500, now up to $250,000, to eliminate the incentives for freaked-out depositors to run. It's an excellent confidence booster, especially now that a bank run no longer requires an actual run to the bank, just a click of a button. So I'm thinking, why not just insure 100% all bank and savings and loan deposits? Deposit insurance doesn't eliminate fear. In 2008, panic about sketchy mortgages created runs countrywide, financial, Bear Stearns, Washington Mutual, Lehman Brothers, AIG, all collapsed when their short-term creditors lost confidence and demanded their money back. So the government's crisis managers have tried to eliminate incentives to run by making cheap liquidity widely available and by guaranteeing trillions of dollars worth of liabilities and persuading Congress to inject $700 billion worth of direct capital into the system. And it worked. The panic subsided. The system recovered. Right Now, the conventional wisdom is that uh, Wall Street got bailed out while screwing Main Street. But the reason the government bails out Wall Street is to prevent the banking crisis from turning into a second Great Depression that really would have screwed Main Street. So the financial rescue of 2008 helped stabilize the system. Fall of Lehman Brothers, which the government failed to rescue, is what nearly dragged the system into the abyss. Elliot says, what, wouldn't you incentivize the bad bets? No, because the stockholders of these banks and financial institutions, they do not get bailed out. The bondholders do not necessarily get bailed out. And the executives who lead their financial institutions to ruin, they are forever socially ruined. So you're only, you're only bailing out really the depositors and the negative effects of a wider conflagration. But the Lehman Brothers, all right, everyone who have stock in Lehman Brothers, they lost 100%. The shareholders of all those failed firms were totally or virtually wiped out. Exactly. All right. So you are creating a moral hazard here. The CEOs all lost their jobs. The government put a lot of tax money at risk, but it all got paid back with interest. So the mega bailouts of 2008 did protect some irresponsible financial gamblers from the consequences of their bad debts, which did unfortunately send a bad message about irresponsible gambling. That's why Obama signed the Dodd-Frank financial reform law in 2010, which made the fire code much tougher, required more bank-like firms to obey it. So financial stability, unfortunately, tends to breed overconfidence. So in 2018, President Donald Trump signed a bill relaxing Dodd-Frank's oversight rules for Silicon Valley-sized banks. Not such a great idea. So more oversight would have been better because Silicon Valley Bank was a disaster waiting to happen. 
a bank with 94% of its deposits uninsured was uniquely vulnerable to a run. Also, it didn't help that most of the deposits came from one gossipy industry, or that its executives were using them to place long-term bets on low interest rates. So the early stages of a financial crisis can be tricky for the firefighters because it's hard to know whether there's a genuine systemic panic risk of the fire spreading. They don't want to overreact to every sign of turbulence because bailing out reckless risk takers can create moral hazard, which encourages more reckless risk taking in the future. At the same time, the natural instinct to punish irresponsibility can fan the flames of panic in real time. So there are many different moral values here. You want to punish people who do bad, but you don't want to ruin the financial system for everyone and send tens of millions of people out of work. So there are many different moral values to weigh up here. So bailouts are inevitably suboptimal. They inevitably make people mad. But continuing problems at First Republic Bank and a few other regional banks, right, right now, unless we start guaranteeing all deposits, right, people are just going to shift their money away from regional banks. So regional banks are just going to go broke if we don't shift these incentives. So once the fire is fully extinguished, right, we should figure out why Silicon Valley bank supervisors let it play with matches. We should update our fire code, including the dollar limits on deposit insurance, make sure our firehouses are properly equipped. But we shouldn't delude ourselves that we can fully fireproof the system or ensure that it never requires another bailout. As long as financial institutions borrow short and lend long, they will always be vulnerable to runs and risk will always migrate to the path of least resistance, especially in times of stability, when the risk doesn't seem that risky. So we should have the humility to recognize we probably won't anticipate where the next fire will start. And when it does, we should hope that the men and women with the fire hoses will have the guts to do the right thing again. Right. Interesting perspective there from the Atlantic. Whatever it was. And the in the gurus that we cover, one of the things that we've noticed as a recurrent theme, uh, and it probably is, you know, uh, gurus that lean a bit more towards the heterodox or right side, but they'll often be referencing a cancellation, right? Yeah. Public public trauma that they've gone through. And Brett Weinstein has, has discussed this like explicitly, where he says that once you see that somebody else has undergone, you know, like the public trial by fire and they've come through the other side, one, you can trust them. So like it's automatically a kind of signaling thing, but also just that there's an empathy because you both have experienced the same yeah thing and uh i i've been critical of sam in this direction because i suggested that that might his experiences in those regards might make him overly sympathetic to any figure who you know has gone through a kind of like public denunciation um but i i'm wondering do you think that's like stretching things um you know a, a cancellation is not necessarily the kind of trauma that people are usually talking about when they're talking about you know bonding that's, a, that's so, super interesting the, the sort of suffering i'm most interested in, i've done the most thinking about is voluntary suffering and these are cases you're talking about involuntary suffering where really bad things happen to you and I guess I'll say two things. One thing is that I think being canceled in, in a strong sense is horrible. It's social death. I think if you really ask people, would you want to have your, your friends, your family reject you, be roundly mocked by thousands of strangers, public humiliation, or would you rather lose an arm? I think people would prefer to lose an arm. I think, I think that, I think that, the, and, and, if, and those who don't actually may not, may not be fully appreciating what how social pain feels like. This is why, you know, when I'm on social media, I, I try to do my little bit and not, and not pounce on people, even if they seem deserving, because whatever taste I've had of it, I know. It is worse than you may think. And so that I agree with. I agree with people who say, we're talking about how awful it is. Whether it's deserved or undeserved is a separate question. There's all sorts of cases where people might, you know, cry on oh, being canceled when they're just undergoing perfectly normal criticism. But the full heavy duty stuff is, is the worst. 
The second thing I'd say, and I'll, I'll push it back to you to tell what you think. I think that this stuff is often does not make you a better person on the other side. A lot of it messes you up. I, I think something post-traumatic growth, maybe a little bit of a myth, a story we tell ourselves. And often people come out, this cancellation, come out fairly damaged and, and you know, and, and damaged and, and not better people in a lot of ways. I have a lot of respect for people who go through this, and I know a few, and they come out and they're generous and they're kind and they're warm and they're loving and their politics hasn't gone crazy and they don't, they're not simmering with rage. But I know a few people, one or two personally, who have been really messed up by this. Yeah, I, I agree with you there, Paul. I think um, I cast my mind back to my life and the really dysphoric experiences are not really associated with physical suffering of various kinds um, or, or even sort of internal emotional yeah. stuff. But it... Yeah, most people's worst experiences, their, their most painful memories revolve around social exclusion. And most people's best memories revolve around, you know, social connection, things that you're, you're doing and building with, with other people. So... I was just uh, revisiting this Sam Vaknin video uh, over the weekend. And this is what life was like for me when I was in the, the state of narcissism. So for most people, narcissism is not a condition. Right? It's not something you have 24-7. It's a state that you get into. And here he explains how the, the narcissist experiences This holidays. is jealous of others for having a family or for being able to celebrate lavishly or for being in the right festive mood. The narcissist's cognitive dissonances crumble. He keeps telling himself, look at those inferior imitations of humans, slaves of their animated corpses, how they're wasting their time, how they're pretending to be happy. Yet deep inside, the narcissist knows that he is the defective one. He realizes that his inability to rejoice is a protracted and unusual punishment meted out to him by his very self. The narcissist is sad and enraged on birthdays and holidays and special occasions. He wants to spoil it, for those who can enjoy. He wants them to share his misery, to reduce them to his level of emotional abstinence and absence. In short, the narcissist hates humans because he is unable to be one. A long time ago, I received this letter from a narcissist. He said, I hate holidays and birthdays, including my very own birthday. It is because I hate it when people are happy. And I hate it when they are happy if I am not the cause of their happiness. I have to be the prime mover and shaker of everyone's mood. No one will tell me how I should feel. I'm my own master. I feel that their happiness is false, fake, forced. I feel that they are hypocrites, dissimulating joy where there is none. I feel envious, humiliated by my envy and enraged by my humiliation. I feel that they are the recipients of a gift I will never have, the ability to enjoy life and to feel joy. And then I do my best to destroy their mood. I bring bad news and tidings. I provoke a fight. I make a disparaging remark. I project a dire future, I saw uncertainty in the relationship. And when the other person is sour and sad, I feel, I feel relieved and even elated. It's back to normal. My mood improves dramatically and I try to cheer her up. Now, if she does cheer up, this time it's real. It's real because it's my doing. I controlled it and I control her. Holidays remind the narcissist of his childhood, the supportive and loving family he never had, of what could have been it never was, and as he grows older, he knows never will be. He feels deprived, and coupled with his rampant paranoia, he feels cheated and persecuted. He rails against the indifferent injustice of a faceless cold world. Holidays are a conspiracy of the emotional haves against the emotional have-nots. Birthdays are a narcissistic injury. As far as the narcissist is concerned, birthdays are an imposition, a reminder of vulnerability, a fake, fake events artificially construed. The narcissist destroys the happiness of others in order to equalize the misery, 
to spread it around. He rages in order to induce rage in others. Holiday is creating the narcissist an abandon of negative nihilistic emotions, the only one he consciously possesses and experiences. On holidays and on his birthday, the narcissist makes it a point to carry on with his routine. He accepts no gifts. He does not celebrate. He works till, till the wee hours of the night. This is his demonstrative refusal to participate. It's a rejection of the social norms. It's an in-your-face statement of withdrawal. It makes the narcissist feel unique. It makes him feel even more deprived and punished. It feeds the furnace of hatred, the bestial anger, the all-engulfing scorn that he harbors. The narcissist wants to be drawn out of his sulking and pouting, yet he declines any such offer. He evades any such attempt. He hurts those who try to make him smile and forget. In times like that, in holidays and birthdays, the narcissist is reminded of a fundamental truth, of his voluptuous, virulent, spiteful, hissing and spitting grudge, of the fact that this grudge is all he has. Those who threaten to take this grudge away from him, with their love, with their affection, with their compassion and care, those people are the mortal enemies of the narcissist indeed. Wow. I mean, such a powerful video. I mean, if you have uh, some strong narcissistic tendencies in certain states, then maybe you identify with that. But I, I thought it was just a devastating and profound distillation of what it's like to live from the inside when you're in a narcissistic state. Right. More Paul Bloom, Yale psychologist, talking with fellow psychologists. Matthew Brown, who's about to speak, I believe, and Chris Cavanaugh. It's more to do with those social emotions. And, you know, Chris and I are from Catholic backgrounds, and, you know, shame is, a, is an important part of what, of what motivates us. Uh, and, and guilt, and, and obviously ostracism is one of the worst things you can have. But, I mean, you were saying earlier that um, suffering is kind of an important part of pleasure, in a way, if you want it for, for happiness. And yeah. uh, that made me think of how, like, you know, if you, if you were just, paradoxically, if you were just focused on maximizing your comfort and your pleasure, then you would never get off the couch. You would be fed grapes or eating chocolates or something, taking the, 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 the um, least path of resistance. But then I compare that to someone like my dad, for instance, who until very recently was a very keen sailor. He sailed around Australia um, and it took many months and I was with him for a little while uh, of that. And it's, it's really unpleasant. Like it's really boring. It's really hard. Yeah, yeah. It, in many ways, it's unpleasant. Um, but for him, he probably, he was suffering too. But for him, that you could tell that, that that suffering that made the adventure made the good parts really good. And it was an intrinsic part of the whole experience. That's right. And that's, and that's a deep truth. It's a, it's a truth some people don't know. Some people, really adolescents think, you know, the good life is, you know, is... Netflix and, and pot and casual sex. And there's a lot to be said for that, but it does not make a life. And, and what you need is, is struggle and difficulty. But the distinction I, I really push for is there's a difference between chosen and unchosen. You know, your dad went through a lot. If this was against his will, you know, he's taken aboard as a prisoner or something against his will, it would not be positive. Yeah. We feel hopeless and, 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 and it's true too for social suffering. So sometimes people choose loneliness. They choose estrangement, maybe as a test, maybe as a rite of passage. And that, that can make you a better person. It's when, you know, it's when it happens against your will that I think it does not tend to have yep. effects. Yeah, Paul Bloom there. Emotion, and it leads to sort of uh, myopic and poorly, uh, and, and ultimately a moral decision. But getting into somebody's head and trying to figure it out what's going on is, I think, a pretty useful skill. Now, I remember, I think you two went back and forth with Bob on this. And I think that there's room to... Bob being Robert Wright. To sort of ask the questions, how good can we be at this? And how much of a difference will it make in the end? But I still think, I, I agree with Bob in the spirit of this, that... that if you had to choose between knowing too much about somebody's head, what, what they're thinking, knowing too little, you should try to know too much. You should try to err on the side of cognitive empathy. Do you two uh, disagree with that? No, I, I, I think, yeah, the, our, my, uh, my, I'll speak for myself and you can like uh, rejoin what I say, but the, uh, like, 
I've no issue, and I think it is useful to understand even the most you know terrible people, like understanding how Hitler seen himself or whatever. Like I, I think it is good to have cognitive empathy, even just from strategic purposes of trying to defeat your enemy, right? Like if you don't have a good model for them, it's it's not um it's going to go worse for you. But I I think the the issue that we had with the way that Bob applies it is that it feels a little bit like there's an issue of cognitive empathy if it's unevenly applied. So if you extend a whole heap of cognitive empathy to understand how Putin feels aggrieved at the, you know, the West and, and NATO expansion and so on. But you then, and, and like the possibility that, you know, uh, various countries will join NATO. But you also should be surely extending the cognitive empathy towards Finland and the various other countries neighboring Russia who might find a, a belligerent uh, yeah. imperialistic neighbor of concern. So like, I kind of feel everyone is employing a selective degree of cognitive empathy and, and then like just appealing to the cognitive empathy idea can allow you to justify, well, I'm, I'm really focusing on, you know, like, and, and in the worst case, leaning into apologetics for people. I see what you're saying. I, I guess what I think is you're describing bestowing cognitive empathy almost as if it were a gift, a kindness. And to some extent, I see this, which is if I, if I care for you, I'm going to want to know what makes you tick. I don't want to hurt your feelings. I want to sort of be able to, to, to um, appreciate why you're doing what you're doing. So yeah, in a perfect world, we, we extend cognitive empathy to everybody. But you might say, I think the Bob would say this, is you really, if we had a limited supply, not much time, too much, you know, it's hard. We don't have much time. We should direct a lot of it towards Putin because he's our enemy on this. And, and far from being. You should uh, direct a lot of empathy towards Putin if you're making geostrategic uh, decisions because Putin can launch World War III, right? Putin can launch a nuclear war. That's what makes Putin unique. And that's why Putin is rationally, empirically, realistically deserving of more expressions of empathy than, say, the Ukrainians or the Finns or the Swedish, all right, or the Poles, because those other countries, they can't launch a nuclear war. Putin can launch a nuclear war. So just as you should be more polite to people carrying guns, so too you should be more polite to the leaders of nation states that uh, possess nuclear weapons. If you have to figure out what's going on, Figure out what's going on ahead of the person who might, you know, blow yeah. the world. No, I think Chris and I totally agree with the, with that with that aspect of it. That, that kind of cognitive empathy is a very good thing, whether or not you're looking to work with somebody or work against. Yeah, figure out what's going on with the person who has the power to blow up the world. Right, that's more important than figuring out what's going on with the people who do not have the power to blow up the world. Power matters. Hard power, nuclear power, economic power matters. Um, I think where we see the danger is is that it can open the door to a kind of relativism. Which is I oh no we can't have relativism oh no and and kind of interesting and we have the same approach chris with with the gurus like there are people who are who are haters right or activists who would like to take down various people and it, you know you'll you'll get these interpretations of what makes them tick in terms of oh they're all grifters oh they're all they're all you know um trying to trying to create a gateway to fascism or something right basically simplistic explanations for an understanding of who they are and why they do what they do. And the real, the real reasons are often really interesting, like, like the narcissism that you mentioned before there, Paul, like they're often they're acting in full sincerity. They really are that full of themselves. And the, um, you know, the, the picture you get is not a pretty one necessarily, but it's, it's a more complicated and interesting one. And for you, respond, Paul, I just qualified that Matt is not saying that there's no structural influences that, that are relevant because like, I think as we've looked at gurus and the networks that they have it, it is clear that there are sometimes influences coming from either their audience or, you know, political ideologies, which, which do impact beyond like just their psychological motives. But I, I think it can be in. Hello, caller, you're on the air. Oh, blessings, Luke. Blessings. Long time caller, another call. Yeah, bro, Wonderful. I, I got to push back on all of this. I got to push back. 
sorry. I'm, I'm triggered, bro. Okay, bro. This is a safe space. Okay. So, you seem to think that, okay, so the converse of extroversion as being intrinsically preferable to um, introversion, you know? Yes, that, that, yes. It, it makes and, for a more socially effective personality. People are going to be usually, generally speaking, happier being more extroverted than introverted. Yeah, but these, okay, I'm just drawing upon my own experience, obviously. So this is not a peer-reviewed study. This is simply my <laughs> observation. So I've seen extroverts be very manipulative, be very unscrupulous, and they're able to cover their misdeeds through their sort of their mag their magnetism and extroversion, right? And these, these sort of, now I'm talking about hyper-extroversion here. Um, you know, there's no moral judgment. There's no moral value to one or the other. I'm not trying to say one better than the other. I, I think I think you're off base here. I think you're you're overweighting the value of extroversion, just because the presence of extroverts may have like a bombing hypnotic effect on you. It makes you you know come out of your shell or something, whatever you feel. Um, I don't think that's the case. I, I think you need to. I need to. You need to reflect more, and yeah, I think you need better epidemics. Uh, so, do you think it's better to have you know higher testosterone than lower testosterone? All things being equal, I think there's. Pro I think there's probably a healthy amount. Yeah, and but, so you're more uh, likely then, to have and, that. And so then, you're more likely to have that healthy amount if you're socially connected, uh, as opposed to being isolated. So let's separate. Um, sorry, I know I'm saying uh, but let's separate uh, introversion from isolated because they're different. There are differences, but they are connected. I mean, there are there are some yes. similarities. I guess there's introversion by choice and introversion by necessity or something. But uh, the decision to be introverted could be. Um, to be healthy, very healthy. Of course, the decision to not wear a seatbelt can be healthy. I mean, the, the decision, uh, all, all sorts the, of decision yeah. can, can, can be healthy. What I'm asking is, all things being equal, will most people be better off being a little bit more extroverted than introverted? And all things being equal, most people will be better off being a little bit more extroverted than introverted. I think so. Yeah, that's probably true, especially in the young um, who, who need to make connections, you know, to be successful in their career. So I'll give you that. Um, but I think just to say, A, the more extroversion, the better is wrong. And I think to say, to say um, introversion is inherently pathological is also wrong. So I just think that you're... But no one's saying that. Th you, that that's a straw man. No one's saying that more extroversion is always right, and no one's saying that introversion is always wrong. All I argued was that all things being equal, people, most people would be better off and more effective and lead a happier, healthier life if they are a little bit more extroverted than introverted. It's unknowable. It's truly unknowable. Well, there's, there's really, some pretty good. There are some pretty good arguments. I mean, people who are socially oh, okay. connected, you know, tend to be a lot healthier. I, I think 
I, I, I would bet that people that tend to be more introverted are less likely to create, uh, commit crime. They're more likely to feel shame about their misdeeds and therefore course correct. I think extro extroverts tend to paper over these things and not do them and not, they, they're disinclined. They don't do introspection. And I think a good part of becoming a good human being is to do significant amounts of introspection. Uh, that's a great discussion topic because I think you will learn more about yourself from interacting with a wide variety of people, particularly the more intense and, okay. and powerful the interaction than you will just introspecting on your own. We learn a lot more. Like I'm learning more from talking to you than if I was just sitting on my own thinking about these things. Well, I think it has to do with the quality of your interlocutor, bro. <laughs> anyway, I, I didn't mean I didn't have a lot to say. I just thought that uh, I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm misperceiving. But when I like when you go to the, the the marathon and you observe as a participant and you cheer kind of for people that you don't know and will never meet, you're kind of indulging in a strange illusion that's that's I don't think likely to lead anywhere. You're behaving like a member of society. Yeah, but you don't feel it, bro. You're 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 trying to force something that isn't there. It's like when you go to the bar and pretend to be a drinker and a and a and a rowdy football fan. When in your heart you're not feeling it, I think you do damage to yourself. You're trying to shoehorn yourself into something that's not truly compatible with your nature. So sometimes it is, you know, very awkward for me and it doesn't come off. But overall, pushing myself to be more social has done me more benefit than not pushing myself to be more social. So not every interaction turns into a winning interaction. Not every social engagement is a, a winning engagement. But the general tendency to uh, moderate my own tendencies towards isolation, I do feel like that general tendency to to moderate my, my tendency towards isolation has served me like i am better off for having walked along that marathon course even though i don't think i had one conversation with anyone but i was i was around thousands of people and picked up some energy and some i think some insights into life just seeing how socially engaged so many people were it's like oh that that was a good experience um okay i, I i'm just trying to make a case for uh, your own intuition and your own proclivities being a satisfactory guide for yourself. You're saying trust my gut. I'm trying to say I am saying trust your gut. Uh, in a way, yes. I think I think the knowledge, the the feelings that you get from socializing are very evanescent. Well, all feelings are very evanescent. If you went and had a wank right now, you know those feelings would be particularly intense for a few seconds, but they would be evanescent. Yes. So the question is, is do you want to have one evanescent experience after another? And is that going to lead you anywhere in the end? Is it going, well, or is it just you can a distraction? Have, all you can have are evanescent experiences. There's no experience. Like I could, I could bang, you know, a woman who's a 10 and it would be an evanescent experience. Like I could, I could, uh, you know, appear on a reality TV show and it would be an evanescent experience. I could go, you know, help out, you know, old people in a nursing home. That would be every experience is evanescent. Everything is evanescent.
Like our conversation, bro, is evanescent. It probably I won't know. echo. This conversation probably won't echo in eternity. And that's why it's so precious, bro. <laughs> and sublime. <laughs> and sublime. Yeah, okay, well, uh, I think I made my point. I don't think I necessarily, I think you understand what I'm saying, but I don't think you agree, and I don't think it's really important that you agree. Um, but I, I do think there's a case out there. I think there's value um, in not coercing yourself into things that just don't suit you, and just because you feel you have to. I just don't think that's a winning formula. And uh, what are you seeing with the banking crisis as it ripples around you? Have you had any updates on that over the last week? Uh, not first person, not in my real life. So okay. my basic understanding is the storm has passed, you know. Uh, however, you know, internet, internet opiners will say otherwise that there's big systemic risk out there and we're all doomed, uh, which could well be the case. I have learned to um, be comfortable with not knowing and <laughs> just letting that because every time I've had an opinion about financial matters, it's usually been wrong and it's costed me. <laughs> I'm going to take the path of ignorance this time. And are you driving right now? I am, bro. It's so unhealthy. It's oh, it's so unsafe. <laughs> now, How what do you think? Feel? I know that I drive. Do you feel like do you feel like I'm? Uh, yeah, I'm. Con I, I'm I feel like I'm contributing to the delinqu the delinquency of a minor, uh, uh, it's major also minor. Up here. I'm. It's also pouring here again, and it's this winter is really starting to grate on me. This is the time of year when you can expect some consistent sun, and we're not getting it. And I'm really unhappy. Well, blessings, bro. Okay, talk to you later. Bye-bye. Like reducing Bye -bye. it to the single factor that, oh, this person doesn't hold any of those actual beliefs. In, in many cases, like they find the ideology and the partners that match their psychological and, and personal beliefs. Yes. So, yeah, that's just a qualification. Yeah. I'm just yeah. saying that. Okay. Yeah. I, I meant to skip yeah. the emails. Cool. <laughs> um, I just want to, I'll, I'll even get more, more sympathetic toward, towards your gurus because we're just mentioning motivations that are sort of unsavory, like narcissism and, and the like. But sometimes, sometimes the gurus, even the ones that you're hardest on, may be making the world a lot worse. But their motivations might be to, you know, to impress their friends, to, to, to um, show some people that they're worth taking seriously, to avenge past humiliations. Honest belief yeah. that they're right. Honest, you know, which we all have maybe more than we should. Mm. Um, none, of us, none of us would be talking to this unseen audience of a lot of people if we didn't have this somewhat unhealthy belief that what we say, what we have to say matters. Yeah. Well, you know, we're, yeah. We're, we're, we're a small portion of the population that's at that, that sort of weird psychological state that we share with the gurus. Well, a lot of the world, you know, I, I was wondering somebody said, hey, you know, have you ever thought of being on a podcast? And they say, well, I don't really have much to say that people be interested in. And I think maybe, maybe that's true. Me too. <laughs> that's right. We've all got unwarranted confidence. There's no doubt about that. We all have, un that's right. That's right. We all, you know, in some way, you know, I, I know you're the, you're the guru hunters, but, but, you know, these movies just end one way. Where, 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 where you, you become what you've been fighting against. Don't worry, I'm ready to take him down, Paul. I've seen the, the warning signs. Like, yeah, one of you guys. This is going to be like backdraft, isn't it? It's going to turn out one of us is lighting the fires. Um, but but yeah, like like we were talking at the beginning about how you know human beings are intrinsically status-seeking animals and, and social animals looking for recognition and respect. And one of the patterns you see with some of the gurus is that the the traditional avenues of respect and recognition haven't really panned out for them for whatever reason. Now, someone like you, Paul, 
you're one of the lucky ones. <laughs> I'm not going to embarrass you, but there's lots of there's lots of things you can point to where you can be very secure in that, and you wouldn't be driven or vulnerable to um, wanting to make very hot takes about the dangers of getting vaccinated in order to to get this alter alternative source of of, of respect. And in fact, in there lies an argument against cancellation and censorship, which is, you know, I, I think there are arguments just based on intrinsic values of free speech and open discourse and so on. But you're, you're pointing to a very practical argument, which is if you shut down people's access to normal avenues, um, it doesn't make their desire to be heard go away. It drives it underground. It might make it more extreme. I, I think I'm not a Freudian, but I think that there's something to the sort of hydraulic metaphors where it's good to have the valve a little bit open so that, that people can, you know, express whatever they want to express. And if you shut it down too tightly, um, it comes out in other ways. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, um, I, I think, Paul, that like both you and Matt are talking about the fact that, you know, people in general, they're psychologically motivated by seeing themselves positively, right? And, and believing that what they're doing is good, right? There are a few people, I imagine, that, like, that do exist that knowingly do evil and yeah. enjoy it, right? Yeah. Like, and, and just like a flood of hate coming at you for your takes that you constantly put out into the world. Like for most people, as you said, I think that would be an experience where it's negative, right? That you, the, lots of people are talking about how you're an extremist and, and, and so on. But the, the gurus, lots of them don't seem to react like a normal person. It's like they're immune to that in, in a way that's similar to Trump, right? Where yeah. he doesn't seem to be embarrassed by being caught lying. He just plows on through it in a way. And it, it looks not psychologically normal. At the very least, it's at the top of a distribution. And I wonder, do you think that that is more often the case or that that is rare? That like, uh, you know, not saying that people are psychopaths, but rather yeah. that they're, you know, on, on some uh, psychological toggles, they're way up high where actually most of us aren't. And that makes the cognitive empathy thing difficult. I think people have different tolerances and even sometimes take delight in controversy and, and argument. Um, some people I, I will, will collapse at a single negative thing said to them over Twitter. Other people could, could take pride in, in a huge storm of hatred against them. But I think one thing which is important not to miss is that there's often another audience that we don't see. So Twitter's attacking me and it was yelling at me for something. And you wonder, why is Paul holding on to this view? And but what you don't see is all the messages of support I get from my side and, and, all, and all the people on social media you don't even follow, you don't even see. And if Right. So what matters for us is how our in-group regards what we're doing. Back that, you know, that, you know, Joe Rogan gave me a thumbs up over a text and I'm just fine. And so, and, and that sort of status dynamic explains something which I've seen more than once. I'm, I'm sure you two know more about this. We, you have a character who's fairly centrist, maybe on the left a little bit, ends up in a, in a huge storm. Bereft loses reputation, often a job. And, but there's people waiting for him on another side on, 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 a, on a conspiratorial right um, who take him in. And offer him, you know, and, and it really is a sort of familial dynamic, but they, they take him in, they offer him a home, they offer him respect and love, and that's where he stays. And, uh, and, and it, it, it's not right to dismiss it as sort of audience capture. It's, it's, it's more like, you know, it's more like all these movies where, where some poor kid who's abandoned in a family of criminals adopt. Yeah. Yeah. It, and, and it, wait, look at it, it shows these people are not exempt from, from, from being respected and being loved. It's just, there, there, there's a, there's a dynamic. I, I, I see it more, I'm framing it one way because I don't think it happens that often the other way. I don't see many cases where conservatives rip into some conservative. And then that person being adopted by the left. The conspiratorial left. The conspiratorial yeah. left. Yeah. That's right. We're all of a sudden there. They're with, with Paltrow or they're, they're hawking crystals. Yeah. I, just, I, just, okay. yeah. I mean, we've wrestled with this too, Paul, because we'd, we'd actually be just on theoretical grounds happier if there was, if there was more political symmetry, I guess. And, and, yeah. um, but you know, it, it is just the case that there are these, um, these odd, um, asymmetries in the current political climate. I, I, I guess if I've understood the first thing you said properly, I, I think you were kind of saying that like, even though we all yearn respect and, and regard, uh, yearn for it. Um, it's not a democracy, right? We, what, what, what matters is our, our in-group, our, 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 our familial, whatever our perceived group is. And, you know, if, if they respect us, what builds respect in those circles uh, is, is the thing that counts for us. And to, and to be hated or despised or whatever by, by the enemies out there, that, that doesn't really hurt our self-esteem, does it? You know, it, it's really right. The first thing I ever wrote in my life was an op-ed piece um, about that there is no soul in the New York Times. 
which which was like nobody read it. And some 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 priest sent me a very long polite letter saying that I may be mistaken. Anyway, but but when I as it was coming up, my my, my uncle who I love very much said to me, "Aren't you worried that you're going to get attacked by by very religious people for what you're saying?" And the truth is, no, because that doesn't bother me that much. I've written some things critical of Trump, making me a one million person raising treaty. I don't care if Trump people attack me, but it but it really stresses me and burns me if my colleague down the hall attacks me or my professional organization condemns me. Yeah, we're most we're most worried about the in group feels like. And this is the peculiar dynamic, which is so many people on the left who commit some hearsay, 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 hearsay. Um, get stomped by their own group. Yeah, that is so the, the like, there's a couple of things where, um, you know, the, the dynamics that some people have referred to, especially in like cult uh, scenarios, like love bombing, right, where the, yeah, yeah. The, the group is so affectionate and welcoming, at least initially, before the bigger <laughs> asks come, like, leave your family and, you know, sleep with the leader now. But, but at the beginning, not like that. And um, I, that love bombing, I'm not making the comparison just with cults to be disparaging, but because I think that helps to explain in a way, because when people see people in the cult, they're like, why would anybody join that group? It's so horrible. It makes such demands on their time on their, but they don't see all of the psychological work put to bring the person in and make them, you know, interdependent and, and the genuine happiness that they often have in the initial stages of joining the group, like genuine connection with people. And I, for my sins, I listened to James Lindsay document his, uh, his descent, shall yeah. we say, to where he is now, but there were, what was interesting for me was he would do things like, you know, he's pretty much an open book on when he's recording, like on his podcast thing. And he would talk about all these people on the right are being nice to me now. Yeah. Like, I don't agree with all their thing, but they're, you know, they're welcoming me. And, you know, I had this wrong image of them. <laughs> so like, you know, I, my voice is screaming, like, be self-reflective, you know, consider what if you were saying something different that they didn't like, would they be so welcoming? But that, that seems to have like a really, to really be a dynamic that applies. And I, I do think that the left is particularly prone to just being like the best kind of love is harsh love. Like, yes. you know, we, yes. you, we will tell you that you are not <laughs> all of the sins that you've committed and why you're actually an evil right winger. And then I'm not saying that all the people just. Okay. And uh, let's get a little bit of uh, Paul Bloom here talking with Robert True. Wright. But if you take conspiracies in this literal sense, they happen all the time. It's good to keep an eye out for them. But there's also a second sense where sometimes people hold views um, like uh, QAnon or, or whatever that, that people say that's really foolish. But what they forget is that in everyday life, your goal isn't necessarily truth. Sometimes your goal is to get along. Mm-hmm. And, and rationality, whether something's rational or not, has to be judged relative to what your goal is. If my goal is to be popular among my neighbors, I am being very rational to hold views that maybe are objectively so. But if I held other views, if I, if I disagree with them on everything and I'm ostracized, am I smart? I think I'm stupid. If, depending on, it's only smart if you don't value social contact. Yeah. So before we call people stupid for their views, ask, what are they trying to maximize? What's their goal here? And then when, I think when we do that, we find they're smarter than they look. Well, yeah, I mean, strictly speaking, natural selection didn't design us to either see the truth or speak it. Now, it designed us, I mean, in terms of the very bottom line, the very bottom line was getting genes into the next generation. As it happens, that's often best done if you see the world right. clearly, you know, if you see, although even there, like, you know, we, we uh, you know, it makes sense to see an approaching object clearly if it may hurt you. On the other hand, we tend to overestimate their speed, yeah. uh, but, and that's strictly speaking an error, but it's presumably because better safe than sorry. False positives right. can be useful. And, uh, so, I mean, this is one reason I actually, I think I would put more weight on cognitive biases than you do, although I'm, it isn't the, uh, the Kahneman, Traversky kind are not the kind that I think are, the, are often not the ones that are most important to get straightened out for the good of like the survival of our species. Um, the, the, um, but uh, but I, I, I do take cognitive biases uh, very seriously. And I think you're right. And in, in fact, uh, you know, to get back to the kinds of biases they talked about, uh, Kahneman, Traversky, you know, Lita Cosmetas showed yeah. that some of the tasks, and you, you talk about one of these, that people are bad at, uh, their logical kind of tasks, like what's the best, you know, their inferential tasks. Uh, you know, it's like, if you're trying, you know, I, we need, you know, the, what is it? The Wasson thing. 
Yeah, so believing in conspiracy theory, if everyone at your church or synagogue or your neighbors or your friends or in your community are believing in it, it's perfectly rational to go along with QAnon or what, whatever the conspiracy theory is, depending on what you want to maximize, which should normally be the quality of your relationships. So if the quality of your relationships will be improved by signing on with this or that conspiracy theory, then you're probably doing the right thing. All right, some very distressing news here in the New York Times. really broke my heart to, to read this. A landlord got a low appraisal. He is black and so are his tenants. The landlord says an appraiser who was white used unfair comparisons to assess the worth of his apartment building. This is just so sad. Why do so many people just associate the presence of blacks with lower real estate values i mean it has absolutely no empirical validity it's just something that is entirely made up it has no real world lived experience it's just some kind of hateful stupid bigoted senseless irrational non-empirical projection i remember so painful to me so distressing to me i was at an orthodox synagogue and the president of the synagogue stood up to make the announcements and he mentioned that a soul food restaurant had moved next door and he said either they don't know what they're doing or we need to all sell our real estate and uh, i think this poor bloom fellow says glib medley wrote a book on the hazards of empathy especially in decision making yes he wrote a book called against empathy so how sad that was that the presence of a soul food restaurant next door to this affluent Orthodox synagogue you know, prompted the president of the synagogue to stand up and say either they don't know what we're doing or we all need to sell our homes. I mean, sad and just pointless bigotry. Terry Horton, right? Great guy, Terry. Been a landlord in Cincinnati for more than a decade. And he primarily rents, he entirely rents the single mothers who rely on Section 8 housing assistance to pay their rent. All of his tenants are black and so is he. Now, why would anyone think that Section 8 housing tenants are going to devalue real estate? Why would anyone think that single mothers who rely on Section 8 housing assistance to pay their rent, that this is somehow going to devalue the worth of real estate? I mean, where do people come up with these crazy, crazy conspiratorial, nonsensical, non-empirical beliefs? I mean, this poor bloke, he just wanted to refinance his building and his lender estimated the property's value at around 500000 But the appraiser, right, the white appraiser said his property was worth only 359000 right? So the appraiser is white and... Uh, very clearly discriminated against this black owner and his black tenants. Just completely devastating. It rips the whole bottom out when you come to the realization that because of the color of your skin, they're devaluing your property. Why would people do this? It just makes absolutely no sense. I can't imagine. I mean, I would be thrilled to live in a community filled with nothing but Section 8, you know, black single mothers... Uh, you know, renting apartments. These allegations of discrimination mirror those of other black property owners around the country. Say that appraisers who are white are using their race to determine how much their homes are worth. 
whoever thought that you could like value real estate or, or predict crime rates or predict social cohesion rates or volunteering or educational attainment or income or, or wealth like just on the basis of race and what's so sad is 97 percent of appraisers in the united states are white and this is resulting in widespread appraisal discrimination so on average right appraisers assigned a value that was seven thousand dollars higher to the same home when there was a white homeowner opening the door rather than a black homeowner so this uh there's this appraiser janet miller who was the subject of a federal housing discrimination lawsuit and the settlement mandated miss miller who was white pledged not to discriminate in the future and to attend a training session on the history of segregation in marin county mm, powerful and to watch the abc documentary our america lowboard which focuses on appraisal bias i think we should all watch our america lowboard so that we come to grips with the, this crisis of our america lowboard like how long are we just gonna stand by and and allow this happened it's just heartbreaking today state leaders held a hearing on the topic My of God. racially biased home appraisals black and latino families who say appraisals on their homes are low and that race is likely a factor they believe they were hit with a lower home value because of the color of their skin that's how one couple describes their experience when getting an appraisal on their home and they say that it was undervalued simply because they are black as a reporter covering race and social justice, I didn't exactly set out to become an expert on the home appraisal process. When you even say the word appraisal, most people just kind of look at you with a blank stare. But really for the last two years, that's pretty much been my life, telling the stories of black and brown families who believe they've had their homes valued for less. They've had their homes devalued. They've been lowballed, and they believe the color of their skin is the big reason why. We had a conversation with one of our white friends, and she was like, no problem, I'll be Tanisha. So it appraised for 1.482? Almost 1. $1.5, $500,000 more. And like, how does that happen? So the, the property was never the question. It was who was occupying the property at the time of the appraisal that was the question. The only thing bringing down the value of my own was me. It's one of those stories that you start digging into and all of a sudden it just balloons and becomes bigger and bigger. Countless families have reached out to our race and social justice reporter Julian Glover with stories of racially biased appraisals. Well, I was initially shocked and I thought I was seeing something different than what I was seeing. It doesn't feel good. <laughs> so to, to have somebody come and stand in and then we get the, all of a sudden a higher value. How could the other appraisal be so off? And we're not off. She's off. How can she be so off? It confused the loan agent. So that was really the, the red flag. You never think that somehow you would be the, the victim of discrimination. We now aren't able to pass on to our 19-month-old and to our unborn child. And not because the house wasn't worth that, but because we're black. And throughout that process, over the last couple of years, two things have really become crystal clear. 
The first is it's really important that we all understand the home appraisal process. As we know here in America, owning your own home is truly the pathway to the American. And the important thing to understand here is there's absolutely nothing that uh, some blacks have done that contributed to this, right? This has absolutely nothing to do with, you know, higher levels of crime or higher levels of, you know, out of wedlock birth. This has nothing to do with higher than average levels of sexually transmitted diseases. This has nothing to do with, you know, higher than average levels of murder. This has nothing to do with higher than average levels of rape. This has nothing to do with, you know, social disruption and dislocation. This has, you know, nothing to do with any kind of empirical track record. This is entirely, completely, 100% unrelated to anything that blacks have ever done. This is just entirely, 100%, a, a projection of, of white supremacy, of, of the, you know, the most low and baseless form of bigotry. I mean, nobody has ever done anything wrong in, in the black community that played any role in diminishing the value of black real estate. And yeah, when, when Jews move into a community, uh, property prices immediately start to rise up. When uh, Asians or whites move into a community and gentrify it, property values start to rise. But there's absolutely no rational empirical reason for this. It's not it's not, you know, because uh, crime rates are going down, that you have more stable families, that you have, you know, more predictable and longer lasting life trajectories, that you have fewer people depending upon, you know, social welfare payments, you have lower rates of uh, sexually transmitted diseases. It's not like, uh, it's not like, oh, if you just imagine some, some crazy landlords think, oh, if I rent this apartment to Asian women, say, that they're going to be less likely to trash the apartment than if I rent the apartment to, you know, young black men. Like these crazy ideas that, that uh, many apartment owners have that just bear no relationship to reality. Anyone who's ever rented out, you know, apartment buildings or, or homes know that there's just absolutely no con connection between you know, black, Asian, white, Latino, whether you're renting to men or to women, to old or to young, all groups are equally likely to pay the rent on time, right? People have some crazy ideas that some groups are like more likely to declare bankruptcy, uh, more likely to be late with their payments, uh, more likely to have difficulty paying, uh, more likely to get arrested. Uh, crazy ideas that some people are like more likely to trash a place uh, be, you know, louder, uh, to, you know, violate social norms, to engage in activity that brings the police over. But any of that is no more likely with old people than with young people. It's no more likely with men than women. It's no more likely with, you know, Asians or, or blacks. Like all groups are equally likely to not pay the rent on time, to, you know, commit murder and rape and crime to engage in socially destructive behavior. And then for no good reason whatsoever, you have this crazy, unfounded, totally not empirical, fantastical, you know, bigotry that just bears zero basis in anyone's life experience. So sad. Bye-bye.